The following podcast contains explicit language. Now, I have great respect for women. I respect women more than I respect men. Are the men insulted by that, by the way? Nobody has more respect for women than I do. My, my daughter, Ivanka, always says, Daddy, nobody respects women more than you, Daddy. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I'm scab podcasting today, crossing picket lines in shameful defiance of the women's strike for International Women's Day. So my plan is a sort of psychological strike. I'm determined to be uncooperative with the patriarchal producer of Trumpcast, Jason DeLeon, and I'm going to be lazy today too. Just kidding, kind of, but I do stand in solidarity with my striking sisters and plan to join the march later. You know what? Some days this president seems like a good, astringent opportunity for a late-life civics lesson and a complete and healthy audit of moral and political life. But other days, I feel almost mute in the face of the inhumanity and bonkers bigotry and misogyny of this sicko president. So today, for some perspective and to cool off, I'm talking to Jake Halpern, who has a deeply reported narrative piece of about 6,000 words in this week's New Yorker. It's about a safe house in Buffalo, New York, where asylum seekers from places like Eritrea and Colombia stay while they prepare to flee the U.S. I want to talk to Jake a bit about the making of this piece, and not just because it's a real feat of reporting that definitely commands admiration, but because in the debate over fake news, fake and real, we're too often talking about facts delivered in soundbites and tweets on cable news and Twitter. So go with me here. Those facts on cable news and Twitter, when done right, are derived from primary sources with proper notarization, including government reports and official documentation. But when done wrong, the so-called facts we're discussing originate in hearsay, rumor, and propaganda. I want to talk about a whole other category of facts with Jake Halpern, a whole different category of journalism. This is deeply reported and fact-checked journalism done according to strict ethical standards and in person with people who tell their own stories. And every single fact is checked here. How long did one refugee sleep at the San Bernard de la Cole border crossing? Was it eight hours or seven? And is it San Bernard de la Cole with hyphens or not? The New Yorker uses fact-checkers, in this case, one of whom has fluent Spanish, to get all this right. And if you think there's an alternative fact in the use of hyphens in San Bernard de la Cole, well, that kind of relativism may sound cerebral, but it's ludicrous. San Bernard de la Cole has one spelling, and the spelling of place names is not political. You have to get it from an almanac and then double check it. End rant, or rather end my second rant. But I bring this up to say that during the war in Vietnam, it was the -the on-the-ground reporting and photography that drove political action in the United States and not the editorials. And while there's a place for editorials, of course, it's also imperative that reporters of every political orientation go to speak to people affected by Trump's policies and administration or whose experiences are relevant to how we live in America under Donald Trump. Joining me on the line today is the journalist Jake Halpern, who writes for The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic Monthly. His work can be found at jakehalpern.com, and we're lucky to have him here today. Thanks for joining me, Jake. Thanks for having me. So you have written a really bang-up piece called The Underground Railroad for Refugees, 
for The New Yorker. And one thing I really like about having you and this piece on the show is that we so often have, you know, very insightful pundits and historians who've written usually short pieces, notes and commentary about Donald Trump. But you have written a very long reported piece with, you know, it looks like years of reporting involved in it, or or at least many months of reporting. And you can start to tell us stories about what it is to be an asylum seeker in the United States, or as you point out, asylum seekers in some cases who are fleeing the United States for Canada. How did you report this piece? How did you get access to so many asylum seekers and hear their stories? Yeah, it actually was years in the making. I started, well, a year and a half. I went to this place, Vive, which I read about in the article for the first time in the fall of 2015. So the story in a nutshell is that I had heard about this safe house that existed in Buffalo where political asylum seekers from around the world would come. They would literally show up from Afghanistan. They flew to New York or ended up uh, coming up from Latin America, crossing the Mexican border and greyhounded up to Buffalo and would show up at this address for this beleaguered, uh, weather-beaten old schoolhouse on the east side of Buffalo. And they had been told, if you can get to this address, they will find a way to get you to Canada. And you say that people, that Canada has sort of superseded the United States as the destination of choice for refugees. When did that happen? When did when did the United States sort of lose its standing as as a shining city on the hill? Well, I think that part of it was that People always knew that Canada had some advantages. Um, This is dating back decades, Um, you know, going all the way back to the first Trudeau. So Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, back when he was running things in Canada back in the early 80s, even then there was a sense that um, that Canada was was kind of a better bet if you were a political asylum seeker. Um, There were certain categories of asylum that you could get there. For example, if you're fleeing gang violence you have an easier time of that in Canada than you do in the United States. But also, just like I said before, Canada had a support system for refugees once they were there that didn't exactly exist in the U.S., socialized medicine, access to education, housing. So people always kind of knew that Canada, in many ways, was a better bet than the U.S., but that that became all the more true after Trump became president. But Vive has been around for four decades. Um, so for basically for 40 years, people have been coming through this house, 100,000 people from over 100 different countries. That's what caught my, you know, I'd heard that there was this safe house and I was like, ah, like I imagined a a modest trickle of people. And then I spoke to a volunteer that was there and said, no, 100,000 people have passed through this house. And so that just, that just led me to wonder like, whoa, how, how does that operate? How is that working? And a lot of this is pre-internet. It's word of mouth. It's people in Kinshasa, in Kabul, and far corners of the globe, knowing about this random street address in Buffalo. And the other thing I'll just add is, see, I grew up in Buffalo, and I grew up with all the stories of how Buffalo was a kind of stop on the Underground Railroad, getting fugitive slaves up to Canada during the 1850s. And so I immediately, when I heard about this, I just thought, wow, this is like the old Underground Railroad network has been revitalized, and Buffalo is serving that function again. So that was the kind of what enticed me to to kind of dig in to, to start reporting the story. So you say that and Vive was founded by nuns in 84 um, yep. and it's International Women's Day. And so it's, I think, worth concentrating on 
uh, the part of your piece that's about um, about women. Um, yeah. We typically think of probably because the last Muslim registry and Sears singled out men only for extreme vetting, vetting and registry. But clearly, Trump's policy makes no exception for women and children. And you point out that there are particular problems, unexpected problems faced by women that might make it even more difficult for, you know, would-be asylum seekers in the United States who are women. Um, maybe you could tell us the story of the the woman in your piece called Tita. Yeah. So there are a lot of, first of all, when you, when you go into Vive, it's this, imagine it's this old kind of rundown schoolhouse and it's packed with people, especially now. Um, people are, are trying to get to Canada in, in large numbers. And many of these I would say the majority of the residents that I saw were women and children. There were Amazing. men there too, but yeah. um, there was like kids watching in this like little playroom. They were playing. They were like in every nook and corner. You saw kids in kind of running around. There was actually a special room for women that had basically suffered uh, sexual violence or severe violence from men, so they could be kind of sequestered. I mean, this was the issues of women's rights were were like obvious to to the visitor. Um, the particular story that you mentioned, which is one of the ones that I follow involves a woman from Eritrea named Tita. So just let me just talk you through what happens when you show up at Vive. So, you, you know, your taxi cab drops you off on the east side of Buffalo in a pretty rough area. About a quarter of the houses are, va- are abandoned or vacant and uh, very forlorn in the winter. You get out of your taxi cab or, and you, get, you scramble up these steps and they process you like you would at a hotel. At, I guess, a motel or something. They take your information, they give you a place to stay, they get you a meal. And then basically the next step is, okay, what's your plan? Most of these people want to go to Canada. So if you want to go to Canada and want to present yourself officially at a border crossing, you need either to be an unaccompanied minor or you need to have an anchor relative in Canada. What counts as an anchor relative? Is okay, it... that's a crucial yeah. question. This is where we get to Tita's narrative. So an anchor relative is a husband, it's a child, it's an, or an aunt and uncle or a sibling. So an, an immediate family member. So Tita shows up. She's from Eritrea. She has uh, about a five-year-old child and a husband who she was separated from when they fled and they were in Sudan. And the, the husband and the kid had, had made their way to Canada. And she was stuck in Sudan for several years after that, separated from her young child. So she finally gets her family members to give her some money she raises money to pay a, um, a human trafficker who, tra- who takes her to Latin America, then up all the way to the Mexican border. And she ends up in detention at a U.S. facility when she tries to cross into the U.S. And then she ends up at Vive. So they say to her when she gets to Vive, who's your anchor relative that would allow you to pass on to Canada? And she said, well, I've got, I've got a, my, my child and my um, husband are there. They're waiting for me. And she hasn't seen her kid in like four years, she hasn't seen her kid grow up, and he's waiting like four miles away on the other side of the border. They're and like, he's, look, he he was one when they separated. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So they, they're having this whole. So basically, they're like, okay, we believe you, but how are you going to prove that? Because you need to prove in order to be admitted to Canada and make your asylum claim, you need to convince the folks at the border that this kid and this man are really your husband and child. If you can pay $1,000 to do a DNA test, you can do it. She says, I don't have 1000 bucks." She said, well, what do you have in terms of paper documentation? And she had a birth certificate 
with uh, her son's name on it. She didn't have a marriage certificate because she wasn't married legally to him because they were refugees and it was just a church wedding. So they were kind of looking at these papers and they're saying, you know, you've got some stuff, but they may not take this. And so the, this is actually a very dramatic thing because if they turn her back at the Canadian border, the gears may be set in process for her to be deported back to Eritrea on the U.S. side. So she may have traveled halfway around the world, seen her son and child, who she hasn't seen in four years, for all of 30 minutes during this interview, and mm. then be turned back. You also point out that Tita suffered persecution as a Pentecostal Christian in Eritrea, religious persecution. Yeah. And it might even be possible that her marriage certificate didn't count because it was a church wedding. And yeah. uh, and that's another thing, that her documentation is somehow compromised, partly because of her history. It just, I don't know, just the, the level of left brain thinking required by exhausted women who've been separated from their children and are in enormous amounts of psychological and in some cases physical pain was overwhelming to me in this piece. Yeah, no, that's all that's all true. She fled originally from Eritrea because she was she was imprisoned for being a Pentecostal Christian. Um so that was it's it's important to point out here the process of getting asylum, say, in Canada, which is what Tita wants, is a two-step process. So the bit about the anchor relative proving that this is in fact her her husband and her kid that just admits her into the country. That's step one. Got it. Then once she's in Canada, she has to take all the story about being persecuted as a Pentecostal Christian, etc., and make her claim in Canada for refugee status. So it's a two-step process. And the bit about the border, it's part of a treaty called the, the Safe Third Country Agreement. And the idea was, if you land in the U.S., you have to stick in the U.S. unless you have this anchor relative that gets you to Canada. So Tita is in the situation where she's arriving here, she's, there's language barrier, there's like trauma, there's culture, and they're saying to her, like, look, if you even want to get a shot at asylum, you have to prove that, this, that your child is your child. So she gets there and she sees her kid, and um, I said, did he recognize you? And she said he was just like, at first, he was just staring at her. Um, he they had Skype, but he almost didn't know how to respond. And she was just hugging him and sobbing, saying, I'm your mother. I am your mother. Mm. I am your mother. Mm. And um, yeah, it kind of gives you, it gives you the goosebumps. And then uh, she has her interview, and she does convince, based on the documentation that she has, the Canadian authorities, that this is her kid and this is her husband. That then allows her to enter Canada and make her claim for asylum, which she then two months later succeeds in, in doing. Now, there's a whole nother path, and we can talk about that too, about what happens to you if you don't have an anchor relative. And that's kind of actually equally, if not more, fraught with peril. Is that the um, the figure in your piece called Fernando that has yeah, yeah that that has that experience? Tell us uh, tell us about Fernando because he has a very different experience at the border. Yeah, so if you imagine. You know, you have these refugees showing up at the front door of Vive, and once they get settled in, they say, okay, do you have an anchor relative? Now, for some like Tita, they say, yes, I do, and here's the documentation that I have. For others, they arrive and they say, no, I didn't realize I needed an anchor relative to get into Canada. Mm. At which point, there's no legal way for them to get to the country and, and, and request asylum, but there's a basically a loophole in... Um, the kind of law that exists that if they somehow make it into the interior of Canada and make an inland request 
as they call for asylum, that the anchor relative requirement is waived. So it creates this strange incentive to basically cross the border illegally, show up inside of Canada and make this request. Now, the folks at Vive are really careful about not encouraging this, both because it's illegal and because it's dangerous. But the people within the halls of Vive, they know this. So Fernando shows up. He's, um, he's from Colombia. He is fleeing gang violence there. His life had been threatened. They put a gun to his head and said, if you don't join the gang, we'll kill you. He flees to the U.S., he knows that he can't get asylum in the U.S. in the basis of gang violence. He doesn't have this anchor relative, but he, and he's literally he's crying in the hallway, just, just exhausted emotionally and physically. And this other resident of eBay says, hey, you know, if you can sneak across the border, you can make this claim. So he starts searching around on the Internet, and he finds out that there's a town in northern New York State called Roos's Point, and around that area... There are people who he sees have made like notes on the internet that you can kind of sneak across the border at night and make it into Canada. And so he decides that this is what he wants to do. You know, in this time when talking about um, Trump's border wall, there's been a lot of discussion of of civil engineering, like how is it going to be possible to create that wall there? And another thing that interested me about this piece is attention to the actual topography and uh, infrastructure around the U.S.-Canadian border. At Roos's Point, for example, where Fernando considers crossing, you say there's a golf course. So through much of that Canadian-U.S. border, which is vast, there's, there's no fences or walls or anything like that. It's just it's forest or field, which is why uh, Fernando heads up there. Um, and when I... So it's, it's, it's odd the way this happens. The backstory is... I've been looking for someone to follow who was in this predicament. And I get a lead. I've been talking to Fernando by, by telephone when he was still at Vive. And he was telling me, thinking about doing this. And so I was actually down at my in-laws in Washington, D.C. on like the weekend. And I get a call on a Sunday morning. And he's telling me, it was actually a Saturday night. I, he said he was up in Bruce's Point and the, poli- the local police were monitoring him and he was going to cross the next day. And I said, can I come up there and meet you? But I probably can't get up there until like Monday or Tuesday. And he's like, no, I'm crossing. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> all right. So my wife drove me to the airport in D.C. Um, like I, I arrived 30 minutes before a flight, paid for it, flew to Boston, flew to like, I guess, Plattsburgh, rented a car. And at 8 p.m. I show up in this town. It's uh, dark. It's it's cold. It's winter. Um uh, I, I pull up in front of this Catholic church where he said to me, I'd never met him in person. And he, um, all of a sudden, I'm just waiting there and this kind of figure kind of runs out of the shadows and runs and gets into my car. And he says, I'm, I'm Fernando. And uh, I say, okay. And I pull away from the curb and I couldn't have gone 100 feet and the police pull us over. Wow. And they've clearly been watching him. And um, they said I didn't have my light. I didn't turn my lights on when I pulled off the curb, which was true, but we all understood the subtext. And I showed him my ID, and I explained that I was just meeting with Fernando here, and he, they let us go. And so we drove to the next town, and we started talking. I was interviewing him, and he said, I went across. And this is when he points out the golf course. He says, I want to cross on this golf course. I can follow the, the north of the golf course. There's a field, and I can cross in. 
So I was like, all right. Um, he said, will you drive me back into town and get my bag? So we drive back into town to get his bag and we get his bag. And just as we're pulling out back out of the motel, the same police officer pulls us over again and basically says, you again, what are you doing back here? You know, so, in it, it, I just want to stop you for a second and say there's obviously been so much conversation in the Trump administration about the role of the media. And here we really are talking about a very different kind of reporting than you see on cable news. So you, for instance, there are all kinds of ethical guidelines at The New Yorker and and at other responsible news outlets for how you must comport yourself yeah. when you're in the car with Fernando. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think people know this in the that, for instance, were you expected or did you expect yourself to strategize with him about the right way to cross? Well, it was it was a, it was morally it was a very difficult situation yeah. to be in because he he wanted to cross. He's 21 years old. Mm-hmm. He's got his clarinet with him because he's a clarinet player. Um, He's terrified. He doesn't have much money. He feels the imperative to cross because he's basically almost run out of money um, and feels that, like, there's no going back to Colombia. He's desperate. There's there's a moment when this is happening where you feel like, is this, maybe this happens all the time, but certainly, like, I'm not in that situation. And you're kind of tempering your desire. There's a human desire to help any person like this, but there's also... You can't really, you know, and I'm so I'm, I'm talking to him and but I'm asking him, are you sure this is safe? Like, I'm worried about him, uh, you know, and he's saying, yes, I, I have it on Google Map. It's not that far. I can do it. I've got a winter jacket and I'm feeling kind of deeply concerned uh, about this kid who's about to do this. Yeah. And also on, on it's and but also trying to walk this line as this observer of not overstepping it and kind of becoming too much of an active participant in the story. And so I'm, I'm doing all, and there's no editor there. You're kind of just making these, these calls minute to minute. There was no easy rule book that I could fall back upon that said, this is exactly the, the course of action I should do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you took the risk anyway and entered this challenging situation with Fernando. So you decide that you're not going to do this Roos's crossing. Um, keep going. Tell like there was. Yeah. yeah. A, so yeah. we we so we got pulled over by the second time by the police. And it's apparent even to, 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 to both of us that he's not going to be able to cross in this town because the, the police are carefully monitoring him, or this one officer is keeping an eye on him. And also maybe, in fairness to this, like, there just wasn't much going on in this town. Like, it was, a, it was a small, empty town. Anyway, so he's just like, we're just drive. So he's just go. Um, there's a moment where he's like, maybe I'll go back to New York City, and he's just driving down this road. But he's also on his Google, on his phone, doing Google Maps again, looking for another spot. And we kind of pull over at the side of the road at one point, point. we get far enough out of town, and he finds another spot down the road. He's, I'm looking at it. He's asking me what I think. I'm like, what, I'm like, what do I know about, right. about, you know, this? I mean, I've got no idea, but I'm, I'm kind of looking at where he wants to cross and I'm kind of, you don't know what to say really. But I, he said, well, you, you know, can you just drop me out? The spot he wanted to go to is just a little bit further down the road. So I'm literally driving. I have to go that way anyway, eventually when I'm heading home from this night. So he comes with me and then we just get to the spot where he's picked and on the Google map, from his perspective, I saw why this was a good spot to cross because there was a sheared field that had been, you know, closely trimmed on the map that went directly into, and there was a line of trees along 
the far part of the field. So he could easily, even though it was dark out, he could walk along the tree line and the tree line would kind of point him into Canada. And also if he was ever in trouble, he could just duck and if someone saw him, he could duck into the woods. It was, it, it seemed to be a sensible choice. You know, it's really interesting to me because you, you, you point this out that he, in this, what's a very kind of primal elemental experience with the land He's also using Google Earth yeah. for a lot of it. This is a, this is not even maps, right? It's 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 unmarked, often unmarked territory, and you're trying to find uh, granular detail, including where the grass is low enough to get through. Yeah, and of course, and if the, for some reason the phone dies, the map disappears. Um, right. You know, right. So that's you know that's another thing that I was thinking about. But he, yeah, he's using it. But the problem is, and this is interesting, when we get we get to the spot. It doesn't look like the spot, and I didn't realize mm. this until I went back the next morning to understand why, but the farmer had let the field grow with corn and just let the stalks stay there. And so what should have been a fairly straightforward crossing through a sheared field was basically navigating through a vast set of cornfields with the stalks still on it, like head-high corn. Notoriously um, disorienting even in totally uh, disorienting. daylight. Night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, but we get to the spot, and there's not even a spot for me to pull over on the road. And we're not sure if the police are behind us still. And he just, he says to me, uh, it was this really intense moment where he's like, goodbye, amigo. And he um, he hugged me. We'd only known each other a very short time. Mm. But I think there was this sense of like, I don't know. I've just like intensity of shared these, these, these shared however many minutes we were together. And he disappeared into the corn. And... Uh, I just watched him vanish and I um I just was like I drove back to Plattsburgh and I stayed in uh I checked into a holiday inn and I just couldn't sleep. I just I was just like is this kid alive? Yeah. Um and should I have talked him out of it? You know, like, I, I mean, like, it's not my job but to talk him out of it. He he was set on going. I mean, he he was determined to go. But I was just like, I was just spinning through this in my head. And uh, and I, before I left, I'd said, if, you know, you get into trouble or, you know, please, when you make it, I call me, you've got my number. And I'm waiting for this call. And four days passed. And mm. I'm like, uh, oh, my God, this kid died. I was just like, I was thinking worst case scenarios, you know, like yeah. I didn't, like I looked at the map, it looked like it should have been easy, but it had been cold that night. And I was just like, I'm just like really agitated. Yeah. And then finally, after four days, he called me and he said, I made it. I made it. And like, Amazing. I was just like, it was just like, like I, I was just overcome with uh, emotion uh, from it. And, um, yeah, uh, it just that he, I was just, I was so glad that he was alive. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was, so then the thing became like, okay, this is, a, this is obviously a very powerful experience for me as a firsthand witness, but is there, how, if at all, can I capture some of this? So someone else feels a fraction of what I feel. And this is really what it comes, this is what it comes down to. I think with reporting a story like this is that we all hear these stories, but they, they feel somehow unreal. They feel six times removed from our own experience. But if you can somehow capture the realness, the human drama of this, then all of a sudden what becomes 
what had seemed kind of distant and seemed kind of somehow not relevant to us, all of a sudden, and that was my challenge with the story, and I had space to do it, and so I, I hope that I... I hope that I did some part of it justice. Um, he makes it, by the way. So he makes it to Montreal. He actually loses his first round. So the quick story is the cops pick him up. He crosses into Canada. He gets turned around in the bramble. He falls in a creek. He almost gets hypothermia. He makes it to a highway, and the police pick him up and basically say, welcome to Canada. I mean, they, they then take him back to this border control station. He's interviewed for a period of time, but... Just like he had been told in the halls of Vive, they say, um, yeah, you can now file for asylum in Canada. So he files for asylum in Canada, and he loses the initial round, and it's on appeal now. But he's, I think, pretty well situated. Canada doesn't really deport, doesn't really put people in refugee centers, and they don't, uh, sorry, detention centers, and they don't deport nearly as aggressively as we do. And he's also he's met this woman that he's fallen in love with and they're now engaged. Now that doesn't, in Canada, it's a little different. That doesn't guarantee him citizenship, but it may help. So his situation is more precarious than Tita, the, the Eritrean woman, but yeah. he's, he's made it. Amazing. I mean, and, and there are organizations in Canada, including the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and Amnesty International that give ballast to his, his plea, right? It, I mean, he, he has some legal standing there now. Yeah, so recourse. What it, down, what it comes down for him, he he can you can make a claim uh, for for refugee status in Canada based on um, on gang violence, uh, uh, but you you need to prove that you didn't have an what they call an internal flight alternative, which basically hmm. means that he could go elsewhere in Colombia and be safe. The the, the, the judge said. You could have stayed in Colombia, and Fernando said to me, "That's just not true. Um, um, these gangs are not localized, and I really wouldn't have been safe anywhere there." So he's making that case on an appeal, and we'll we'll see what happens. So after Fernando, or sort of interwoven with Fernando, you tell the story of uh, a man called is it Jonathan? Yeah. So you know his story is a bit shorter. So um, the gist of it is so. When people show up at Vive, those who don't have anchor relatives have often heard this story that go to Vive and they can point you to this from there to a railroad bridge that you can sneak into Canada on. Um, and again, the staff of Vive doesn't point anyone in this direction, but people know about this railroad bridge and maybe other residents will pass along the word or it's on the internet. And this kid, um, I just call him Jonathan, um, he shows up there and he's got no anchor relative and he's heard about this railroad bridge that crosses the Niagara River into Canada. And Jonathan says that basically there are surveillance cameras on the bridge, so it becomes clear that he can't just walk across the bridge. Plus, it's a railroad bridge, so if you're halfway across and a train comes, it'd be bad. Um, And by the way, this is the Niagara River just upstream from Niagara Falls, so falling in the water here would be very bad. Uh, Dangerous, that is to say. But topping the train is not easy either because the trains are going pretty fast and you have to basically run, sprint alongside the train and pull yourself up onto the train. And Jonathan had sat at this yard all day and watched the trains and was very worried that he might not be able to get running fast enough and then get pulled under the wheels of the train. Mm -hmm. But he's basically in in the same situation as um, 
Fernando, I mean, he's in the situation where he feels he's fleeing, he's fleeing gang violence from El Salvador. He knows that that's not grounds for asylum in the U.S. He's out of money. He's out. Of, he no longer has legal standing in the U.S. He feels he's got to get to Canada. And he knows about this loophole that if you can get there, you can, you can make the claim in the interior. And so he goes to the railroad yard once and he's like, I can't do it. It's too dangerous. And then he, he goes back like a few days later with this feeling of like, I've got to take the risk anyway. And the train comes in, he sprints alongside the train. He manages to kind of pull himself up onto, I guess, a boxcar or like a, on the train. And then it crosses, he makes it, he doesn't get pulled under it. He, the train kind of speeds across the bridge over the Niagara river. And then on the other side, he leaps off and, you know, he gets banged up a little bit, but, but he makes it. And then I met him at a shelter on the Canadian side and um, he told me his story. And the woman that ran the shelter who's seen refugees do this said the, the horrible part about this story is that um, the system incentivized him to take this risk. Mm. Um, and he then, and then Jonathan then goes on to get refugee status um, in Canada. He wins basically what's their asylum there. So, um, I mean, it's just, you have to, you have to ask yourself, I think, you, I think in order to wrap your head around this, yeah. you have to try to think to yourself, how desperate would I have to be to run us alongside a speeding train where I might get pulled under the wheels and go across a bridge just above Niagara Falls and then leap off? I mean, that's the question I ask myself all the way through. How desperate would I have to be? You know, we've got to wrap up. But but the reason that I, you know, have so many questions here is, we can talk about the data that says it's a vanishingly small percentage of asylum seekers who commit violent crimes in the United States, that the the, the data does not serve this executive order that, first of all, elides the difference between immigrants and refugees, and second, has, you know, at least seven premises that have not been borne out by history or data. Yeah. Um, and, we, you know, we can talk about all that, but it you really do have to be on the ground with some of these figures. And we should add that I, I think none of the ones we've talked about are from the six or seven countries that have been um, part of the Muslim ban of, of Donald Trump. But what does that actually look like? And I don't think we've had a piece that so thoroughly excavates that experience, that physical experience of staying in a safe house and then making this sprint for the for the Canadian border from Buffalo that is, as you say, very dangerous and also incentivized by the system. Um, it's just such a good piece and 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 so valuable in a time of activism to th- stop thinking in slogans and and start thinking in the lived experience of some of these policies, some of these America first policies of of this president. Yeah, I agree with you very much. Um, this is the face of these people. It's like a mom who wants to be reconnected with her kid. It's like a 21 year old guy with his clarinet crossing the border. In, in the kind of wintry darkness. Um, and, it, you know, if it feels it's an uneasy feeling because, you know, we should emphasize this piece is about people fleeing for Canada to be cheering and rooting for people to get out of America. You meet people like this and you can't help but think, but for the grace of God, there go I, you know, yeah. we are a country. Like, when did we 
like this is me editorializing, but this is the feeling that I had after meeting these folks is like, when did we forget that the vast majority of people in this country came under desperate circumstances, whether it was the Irish potato famine or Jews fleeing pogroms or, you know, whatever, not to get cheesy, but like the pilgrims coming fleeing religious persecution. Like, when did we forget that this was our narrative? And it's one thing to say, oh, America first. It's another thing to stare at a kid who's got a clarinet on the border in winter and say, yeah. These are not political issues. These yeah. are these are bedrock moral issues. Yeah. And I'm so glad you clarified these stories for us in this piece. Jake, thank you so much for coming on Trumpcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by the patriarchy, in this case, represented by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. John D. Domenico reads the tweets. And Jacob Weisberg originated the role of Trumpcast host. I'm Virginia Heffernan, the token woman on Trumpcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.